following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Have you heard about Moo Money? Moo Money? Moo Money is a rewards program that lets you earn cash every time you buy real milk. I use mine to buy movie tickets. Movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. It was a musical. Uh-huh. Anyway, just head to MooMoney.com to start earning moolah. Got it. Moolah. Hurry, or everything I told you will be moot. Oh, please, no more moos. Someone's a little moody. Open to legal residents of the state of California, 18 years of age or older. Visit MooMoney.com for official rules, terms, and conditions. Welcome to the Forbes Sports Money Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. On this show, we talk about the business of sports. It's my privilege today to have Super Agent Scott Boris. Uh, Scott, as everyone I am sure knows, is the most successful agent in the history of sports with over $2 billion currently in contracts under management, or I should say active contracts. Scott, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Pleasure to be with you, Mike. So, Scott, we have this scenario that's been going on in baseball, it seems like, with the last few teams that have been sold, most recently the Miami Marlins, where the incoming ownership is coming in and saying, you know what, we're going to have to cut payroll. And uh, I saw you, you know, you aren't too happy about that. You took issue with it recently. You've been quoted about it. Uh, let's get into that a little bit. What bothers you about that? Well, I think the uh, the fan bases, when you know their clubs are purchased, immediately the fans are faced with, and Major League Baseball is faced with, an integrity issue. Um, there are a few people that, when you buy a business, you then go to the shareholders of the business, um, and you would say to them, we're going to reduce operations, we're going to not be competitive in our market for a four- or five-year period. And what we have in baseball is that with the recent purchases of a Houston or a Chicago Cubs major market teams, and most recently Miami, uh, we've got a scenario where uh, clubs are, are uh, essentially saying, I purchased the franchise. Now what I want to do is I'm getting a guarantee from Major League Baseball of well over $100 million. I'm also getting, with ticket sales and and such, I'm guaranteed revenues of around minimally 230 to $400 million, depending on the market. And what I'm doing with that money is that I'm not going to spend it on players and being competitive at the major league level. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use the excuse that we need to uh, retool the team. We need to do it with youth. Uh, we're going to sell off our existing assets, and thereby we're going to be non-competitive. My payroll will drop well below $100 million dollars. And that means I'm going to have well over $100 million a year to use to pay off the debt service that I purchased the team for. So in effect, what this is, is a using Major League Baseball as a financing system to reduce the cost of the team by well over 50% over a five- or six-year period. All right, let me play devil's advocate for a, for a minute here. Uh, you go in and you look at the Cubs and the Astros two previous teams prior to the Marlins. 
you know, can't the case be made that actually what ownership has done there, uh, Crane with the Astros and, and Ricketts with the Cubs, actually worked out in the sense that, yes, as you pointed out, they lost a ton of games, uh, you know, 100 games or more, gutted the payroll. But building up through youth, you know, two years ago, the Cubs finally won the World Series, first one since, I guess, what, 1908 or something like that. And, and uh, you know, this year the Astros winning it. I mean, m- maybe that's sort of the model. Well, I think the argument is that if you want the integrity of the game to remain, uh, we now have a model and a system loophole that gives clubs a real advantage. But remember, four years of tanking and losing have resulted in an impact on the division races and on who is in the playoffs. And it affects... Uh, baseball worldwide, where you have, you know, the ideal should be, the integrity should be, that a team is uh, attempting to be competitive at least seven or eight years out of ten. In these systems, you're talking about a competitive void that will last four years minimum, potentially five, and I'm not saying it doesn't work over time. I'm not saying it's effective, but the reality of it is when you have a league you and you have three or four tanking teams in a league, the, the benefactors of that are the uh, uh, varying teams, not the regions. And the, region, the reason they're doing it is because they've purchased the club and they want to get down their, their debt. Um, it's not the fact that if they were forced to use the uh, monies allocated by Major League Baseball, for baseball purposes and not for the reduction of debt service on the purchase of the team, then all of a sudden where the clubs would be forced to focus on competition rather than their economic model. What they argue is that it does allow competitive advantages in the draft. It does allow them to make trades that they would normally not make. But the question is, do we want a system that basically is geared around owners purchasing franchises and then paying off that that debt and yet having a void in competition for four or five years uh, to that to that fan base. What could we do about it, Scott? What type of changes would you like to see to ensure that, okay, well, I'm coming in? I think in the first I'm... thing is, is that we have to be able to tag revenue. Revenue that is tagged from a baseball team, we have to ensure that the integrity of what that revenue is used for. For example, we have revenue sharing. Um, That should be tagged solely for purposes of competition. And that you have to have a a, a methodology in your accounting where you know that that money is designed for the betterment of the game only and not for uh, a billionaire coming in and saying, I purchased the team for a billion, I'm going to use $50 million a year that year in revenue sharing to basically allow me to become wealthier. I'm going to reduce the debt I have in the purchase of the team, and that's the sole use of that. And, and then when I step in to... Uh, the idea of the money that is generated from the central baseball, and they're giving their national TV contracts, their technology uh, 
revenues that they have recently. I mean, this is well going to be well, well over $100 million for, for every major league team. That money needs to be tagged to where it must be used for competition. Um, and that if an owner, if an owner, for example, is not producing a product that does not provide a 65, 68 win club, then there are economic penalties that come with what the league gives them. So if the league gives them $100 million and you don't win 65 games, you lose the first time 20% of that contribution. And then the second time, so that the owners have an eye on competition. They have an eye on the idea that they really care annually what they, what kind of product they provide, and they have severe steps to do it. Now, the goal is to win 55 games. And we're taking a quick break. The Forbes Sports Money Podcast is brought to you by LifeLock. Is your personal info for sale on the dark web? Monitoring your credit card can't show you, but LifeLock sees a wide range of threats to your identity. If something happens, U.S.-based specialists can work to fix it. Go to LifeLock.com, use promo code Forbes, and save 10%. It's almost like the opposite of the luxury payroll tax, and sort of whereas the incentive it gets worse the more you go over it and the bigger your fine gets. You know, I, just as a general impression, I, I know that you folk, you know, you're a baseball guy. But it seems to me, as I've been looking at valuations and team sales in, in all the sports, uh, the four major sports here, much more so than ever, it seems like the sales are, for lack of a better word, orchestrated by the leagues to make sure they maximize the sale price. So if we, I go back a few years ago where it seemed a little different, where the Padres were, were being sold and, uh, you know, the, the league stopped. Morad from buying it because they were concerned that he was going to use too much of the new local TV deal to pay for the purchase of the team and therefore, to what you're speaking to, not have enough money to invest back in the team, back into players. That seems to have really changed the last few years. And if you go to the Marlins, you know, there were other groups interested in buying the Marlins, but no one else was considering anything close to what the Sherman group paid for principally because they know this is a team losing a lot of money, and if you were going to cover those losses in the next few years, plus reinvest back into the team into more players, you know, you, would, you, you couldn't pay so much money because you're going to have to add more capital on top of that to, to cover the operating costs. Um, you know, the Dodgers seem to have, that, that almost seems to have been the moment where everything changed, where they got all this money the Guggenheim Group did from insurers, from hedge funds, threw it all in there. And that, that seems to have changed the whole uh, uh, valuation of the way these teams are sold, how they're sold, and, and the whole purpose to be to maximize value, which uh, the sale price, which could be leading to this problem. The, the truth of it is, is that remember that the Marlins made a, made allegations of losing money every year to the Florida legislature. We now know that not to be true. And my point is, I know of no major league team, when you look at the math, and they're all making a minimum of 230 to $250 million, minimum. How are they losing money? I, I called it Casper Finance. I, I don't know where the ghost is. 
because I don't know where that money's going. And the reality of it is, is that they can certainly create a bookkeeping mechanism that talks about debt service, talks about other aspects, but from the baseball operation itself, not the debt service, these teams are not losing money. Well, let's get into that. I don't even know that base. I mean, the way baseball teams report their line items to Major League Baseball for things like revenue sharing, it's it's you know it's it's almost like a, a sheet they fill out with numbers. It's not audited, as far as I know. I mean, it's a very flimsy way. So to get to a system where to make sure that teams uh, spend money from revenue sharing or the national marketing or national TV deals on players. How, how do you get to that point? I mean, and plus, they have so many entities now. You get teams that own concession businesses. They own stadium operation businesses. They're all building mixed-use real estate, like the Braves, for example. How do you encompass all of that into some system whereby you can say these streams are actually accounted for and, and being used for operations? Well, there's certainly there's all forms of avenues. Uh, the smaller revenue teams, which every league has them. The truth of the matter is, the small revenue teams, despite the fact that there has been an increase in revenues of over $5 billion in a 10-year period, the smaller revenue teams are getting less revenue sharing than they did 10 years ago. Now, that tells you that uh, my ticket sales corporation is separate from my team. My uh, ability to place uh, the uh, amount of cost that I associate with modernizing the ballpark or building a new ballpark or the debt where I, I, as an, I as an owner am buying the house, but yet I'm putting that on the books to say that that cost is something that that is going to allow me to allege that even though I end up owning the asset, uh, I am uh, putting this out. My franchise value, the Cubs franchise value, for it has gone up almost $2 billion in um, close to five or six years. And yet they're uh, alleging that, you know, they, don't, they, they can't go past the luxury tax. This is why in my recent GM meetings, I said, to be in playoffville, you know, when you've doubled your income and you come home and tell your family you can't move to playoffville, where it has better district for all the things the family may need, winning, and the reason you're saying you're doing it, you're going to go into a gated community, a nicer home, a, a more opportunity to win, and you say, I don't want to pay what turns out to be a de minimis property tax. And that the truth of the matter is your net with the revenue increase is going to be far in excess, including the, pro- the, the luxury tax, of what it was 10 years ago because your franchise is doing so well winning. Uh, you know, we have the, the clubs raising the collectively bargained CBA as a reason for I don't want to lose a draft pick or I, my, my first-round pick will be moved back 10 spots. Well, what does that mean to a franchise? The answer is it means very little as far as what return on investment they're going to get with a low-round draft pick. They don't lose a high first-round draft pick. They're losing the 30th or the or 35th pick in the draft, or they lose a third-round pick. Those may have a value that is $2, 3 $4 million at best annually. 
And so these, and it's the design of the CBA is to create parity where we're having streams of income from the major markets flow to the smaller revenue markets. That was what the CBA desired. Instead, they're using it as a vehicle to say that the luxury tax is not merely a property tax. They're saying that it's a bar to spending. And that was not the intentions of the, of the, uh, CBA and the, and the uh, bargaining from each side when they put the, the deal together. It was clearly intended that multiple teams pay a luxury tax, and frankly, it's good business to do so because the way teams put themselves into Playoffville is that they have five or six better players than the other teams have, and they can come from youth, but more than likely they're going to come from free agency because of the fact that um, the teams that are the high-revenue teams often draft at the bottom of the draft. Would there be a simpler way to do it, to, to get to this, by just having, you know, like, for instance, like the NHL and the NBA and, or NFL a minimum salary? You know, no, I don't, I don't believe in mandates over ownership, Michael. I think it, it's just not worked in the other leagues. Um, you're sitting there doing things that are not in the best interest of your franchise, uh, because the sport is a it is a system of flex, and the reality of it is is that I don't care when an owner spends his money. What I care is is that the money he makes from baseball is eventually spent, and he can choose. He can certainly choose intellectually that it might not be the year, and that I can rebuild. I can do all this, but the that money, that money that he's not spending that year is not money he can use for his personal interest. It is money that he has to use later on when he feels his club has a better chance at at winning. And so we don't want to get in situations like the former Pittsburgh Pirate family, the McClatchy family that came in and operated the team, finished last every year, and bought the franchise, sold the franchise, made two or three hundred million dollars, and did nothing for the integrity of the sport. Those events we have to stop from happening for our game to grow. Uh, the operation of the game has gone extremely well. Uh, it's being run correctly revenue-wise. Uh, where we have an opportunity in baseball with what's going on in football to really, really take advantage of our sport and, and regenerate it. But the truth of the matter is we can't have two or three teams every year affecting the outcomes of, of playoffs because their decision is to tank and not be competitive for four or five years. That should not be allowed, and that's why my suggestion is there's severe penalties if you don't meet a certain competitive level. What's the buzz you hear among the ownership group? Because I know I've had owners call me, an executive, saying, you know what? Uh, I remember once it was the Pirates going back uh, a number of years saying, you know, they're taking their revenue-sharing money, and they're, they're actually the uh, uh, owners are using it to buy back shares and, and actually increase their ownership from, from some of the other smaller owners. Uh, I can't imagine um, a lot of the owners are happy with the fact that teams tank as well. I mean, the Yankees have shown you could do both, right? The Yankees have brought up youth. They brought up some really good young players, and they've remained competitive. Well, again, you know, competitive meaning by the New York Yankee standard. <laughs> uh, the New York Yankee standard is that you're in the playoffs every year, and yet you certainly have a revenue stream that is 
know, the Yankee payroll in 2003 is actually going to be more than what it is in uh, 2018. And my point is about being competitive is that you have these great young players coming. That's wonderful. But the reality of it is, is that what are you doing with now the fact that you're making two to three times the revenue? And then so you're going to have a payroll like you had 15 years ago? And so when you, when you look at these dynamics, you have to be understand that the, a lot of these clubs have a history where many of them have payrolls that are less than what they were 10 years ago, and yet their revenues have doubled or tripled. And my point is, in the game, we have to bring this to attention because we're always talking about player salaries. But we never talk about the revenue structure of the game. And, and my point is, is that the best leagues for the fans and for the integrity of the game are teams that are required to compete. A major league player, when he puts on his uniform, he has to go out and perform. If he doesn't, he's getting released. And the reality of it is we want in sport where owners are required to compete. And if they don't compete, much like players who get salary reductions are released, the same thing is true of an owner where he is in a competitive environment. And if he doesn't produce for the league what, it, what, it, what is required, and that is you have to produce a minimum standard of performance from your team. If you don't do that, you don't get the benefits of the league. That's my point. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Shopping online has its pluses, but also comes with risks. With the holidays fast approaching, here are some tips to help keep your identity and financial information safe. Always use a secure internet connection rather than vulnerable hotspots. Shop on sites with secure payment methods like credit cards or gift cards. Create strong passwords. Be wary of deals that are too good to be true. And finally, avoid phony shopping apps. Here's the thing. Identity fraud costs Americans $16 billion in 2016. If you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can still be stolen in ways you may not detect. Thieves could sell your information on the dark web or get an online payday loan in your name. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. Go to lifelock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code FORBES. That's Forbes for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. What's it like for you watching games of your son coaching? Agonizing. It's a family affair on Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast. You know, I didn't know there was actual work here. <laughs> Recent guests include Rich Eisen, Judge Judy, John Harbaugh, and the Sklar brothers. That was definitely a great moment to tell our parents, hey, we're not going to go to law school. We're just going to go ahead and do a job we could have done out of high school. Thanks for paying Thanks for, for, paying for <laughs> Exclusively on Podcast One Sportsnet. Get episodes every Tuesday at Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. It doesn't take a miracle to be wise with money, but it does take faith and a plan. At Thrivent, we help millions of Christians be wise with money with advice, insurance, banking, investments, and generosity. Visit Thrivent.com. Thrivent, be wise with money. What is the feeling among owners, though? I mean, there can't be... If, if you go back, in other words, your, your point, 2003, I guess that was the big A-Rod deal, right? The Yankees signed A-Rod right around that time, and I think that's, that's one of the reasons why their, their payroll went way up. But, but overall, what, what is it that the owners, you know, you have your pulse on the owners, obviously. What, what is their feeling about when teams well, tank for a season? I think the majority of the owners understand that with RSN contracts and partnerships, 
that there there is no understanding truthfully what the revenues of a team are. My point is is that the owners share revenues on the national TV package. They have a very clear and transparent understanding of what that revenue stream is and how it's split and how it divided among the 30. <clears throat> that system needs to be applied to each individual team's regional sports network relationship. And so when you're a partner, you know, if you have SNY in New York and you own 65% of it, what are you paying your team for the the shared revenues? You're not paying it. It's it, what you would get in an arm's length transaction. There's no two or three hundred million dollars a year listed on the books. It's listed maybe as seventy. And so, consequently, that is the only portion that's shared. So, one of the key factors I think most owners would want would be a system much akin to what they do on the national television package to determine what the allocation is for every team, is that they they have a cleanser system, cleansing system of accountancy that creates transparency where there is a board that attaches a value to what a team is making annually from its RSN and other revenue streams so that you can say, this is supposed to go under, you know, 34% of this is supposed to go under revenue sharing. This is what the actual value is, not what the value I'm saying in a non-arms-length transaction. I, as the owner of the RSN, pay my team for those revenue rights that are illustrated on the books. They did something like that with the Dodgers, right? They wanted to park much more of the Time Warner cable money into what was what is really a shell of an RSN, and they ended up reaching a compromise with Major League Baseball where a bigger chunk of that actually was counted as, as, as a rights fee. Scott, okay, you and I are both all about incentives. I know when you do your presentations and you were the one who really first uh, brought in the use of in-depth analytics to how much players should be paid, and incentives are a big part of that. How do you create incentives, though, if, if you te- one team is putting money into trying to start an RSN or another ancillary business, you know, maybe a, you know, renovating the ballpark or the area around it, and you have another team owner, I mean, who, I mean, quite frankly, for Loria for years or, or, and some other teams, Oakland, didn't really put any money into the franchise. What If, if you take the RSN money from the teams that uh, are more entrepreneurial and include that, don't you have to also put something in there that, that ensures that these other teams that aren't doing anything at least have some incentive to, to try to market the sport, to grow the sport in their area so that they're just not, you know, getting really what mounts to welfare? I don't think owners, you know, when they sit down, when you're a member of the country club, you don't have any problem paying the uh, maintenance crew, the uh, remodeling of the clubhouse, uh, you don't have any issues with that because of the fact that you are allotted and need to do that to run a franchise successfully. As to the exactness of how that is determined and allocated, I don't think it's that difficult to set up a structure whereby you can put a range of 
revenue amount that you can say annually you get credit for this. But remember, in defining revenue sharing among teams and in defining competitiveness of teams, what I'm saying is that an owner may be free to use his revenue streams from certain amounts of what he generates in his ticket sales or what he generates regionally and locally. But when you get into the RSNs and when you get into the money that Major League Baseball is playing those teams, that is the money that has the tag on it. That's the only portion of it. The other portions they can use the revenues as they see fit. And the reason I say that is because that is what's centrally shared. To be a member of the league, you get this no matter what. So it is reasonable to put demands, and it's like federal grants. When you take a federal grant as a state, there's tags on it that says you must use it in a particular way. And we're not taking away the rights of owners to grow their franchise and use their revenue streams that they generate locally. That's their decision. The, what I'm talking about the tags are is what centrally baseball is giving teams annually and also a governance of the RSN, those two areas. That's really what I'm addressing. I, I know this is a really busy time of year for you, so I'm going to uh, uh, cut it with uh, two more questions before I let you go. The one is, what's, what's the feeling or the feedback you get from the players You know, when, in, in the context of what we're talking about today in terms of when teams go in and say, you know what, we're going under this program, we're going to be out of it, we're going to lose 80 to 100 games for two years and rebuild through the minors. You know, I mean, if, if you, I think you have more players on the Marlins presently than, than any other agent, I think four or five. You know, what are the players there feeling uh, under, under this type of scenario where the Sherman Jeter group saying, you know what, we may have to cut payroll to $90 million? You know, the Marlins have, I believe... I think they have five starting players that were born really, you know, after 1990 and on. And, I mean, these are young players. These are players that are, when you look at it, they're 25, 26, 27, 28. A team hoped to build a core that you say is in their mid-20s to make a run for things. And the truth of the matter is the Marlins are just pitching away from, you know, they have a, a premium offense and a core of young, talented, all-star type players. And they're saying that they have to rebuild. <laughs> well, isn't what you have what you hope to rebuild for? That you would have players in the age of 26, 27, and 28 who are beginning the primes of their career, who are the core of your team, isn't, isn't what they have exactly what they, what they hope to rebuild to in six years? And my point of it is when you, when you take that on, it, it is transparent in the sense that you're, you're not looking to rebuild. You're looking for a motive to suggest that I'm doing something for the franchise. But that motive is, is pyrrhic in the sense that it's, it already exists. You already have a core of young players, and yet you don't want them because the idea of it is I need, I bought the franchise with what intent? What was the intent? Is the intent my business model or is the intent to be competitive? And I think the, the evaluation of that is what is concerning. It affects the integrity of the game because you know what? When you introduce a franchise, anytime 
You know, like you can look at the, um, you know, a division where all of a sudden you have two teams that are going to win less than 65 games. That's going to be a, a 10 to 15 game swing from competitiveness of, of winning, you know, 80 games, being under 500. And when you have that kind of swing, it affects who's in the playoffs because that division may have a team getting into the playoffs or into the wild card because they're playing, you know, two good teams get to pay three bad teams, and all of a sudden you end up with um, a, uh, an anomaly that shouldn't exist. It's not competitive. It affects the integrity of the game. And those are the things that I think we hope to draw in. We've seen it work. There, it's true that you can go out and lose for four or five years and create a very nice run on a team. But yet, that's not baseball. Baseball is supposed to be that you should be competitive annually and figure out how to develop it. We don't want to use the false loophole of taking a franchise and putting it in peril for half of a decade to then go out and win for two or three years. Because if every team did that in baseball, you're going to have a sport that frankly you're going to lose fan base because they know they're going to just turn off from the team because their team is not a club that they can really pride themselves in because they know what's going on. I, I, I only have a three-year window out of ten years that I can really take my team seriously, and I don't think we want to develop that, that theory in the game. Yeah, I actually uh, personally believe that the Marlins could be in peril, peril being defined as uh, if they go on and trade Giancarlo Stanton and cut payroll like they're saying, I, I think there's a very different market in Miami for baseball than there is in Chicago for sure and, and even in Houston. And I, and I think that that could really hurt them and it could force them to end up either selling the team or certainly uh, the ownership structure uh, being changed greatly uh, in the near term. And last question, Scott. Under your uh, suggestions for how things should be changed, what do you think the impact would be on overall baseball team values and player salaries? Well, I, I think the one thing we want is we, I believe the sport will become more successful and, and revenues of the game determine uh, the good business decisions of owners as to why they would pursue uh, particular players. I mean, iconic players don't cost a team money. There aren't many of them, but they don't cost a team money because they pay for themselves and increase in advertising rates and TVs or, or increase your ticket sales by a half million fans a world because they're excited about watching a, uh, uh, the, one of the greatest players in the game play in their market consistently. So the idea of it is is to, to generate a system where there's accountability and that the owners that come in, who may be captains of their own industry, they come into this industry and they look at it as though, well, no matter what happens, even though I lose, I'm going to walk away from this in 10 years and I'm going to make uh, a half a billion dollars. And when I operate it, I'm going to make probably anywhere from 70 to 80 million a year, reduce my debt service, and therefore that guarantees me a, a return on investment. That should not be a, a value design for ownership. It should be that I'm going into this game like, like a player, like anyone else, because it's, it's, it's true competition. 
I have to perform well for this to work out for me. And if I don't perform well and I'm not competitive, I may be an owner that loses a substantial amount of money. Therefore, going into this, we that will drive us to people and owners that are richly passionate about the game and also understand that they want to devote a great deal of their time and resources to being competitive because if not, the business model may be something where it's not guaranteed that I'll make hundreds of millions of dollars no matter what I do. And, and the money, if they didn't follow the system and they went in and, and cut payroll and they weren't competitive after buying a team, the, the penalties that they would face, where would that money go to? Oh, the best thing that can happen is that when the owners go to the owner meeting and they find out that one of their teams isn't competitive, they all look and say, thank you. I get, you know, the, the smaller revenue Cubs get, uh, get the majority of it. The other clubs all get the reward that they, you know, the last game of the season, and I only have 64 wins and I need 65, the opposing owners are going to be throwing their ace. They're going to, they're going to say, this is a way for me to generate income if he doesn't meet his standard of performance. And therefore, I, I understand that that has benefit to my franchise for the future. So it creates a pocket of competition um, where everyone knows what's on the line. And that way, there's an interest to it. It's not a meaningless game. There's an incentive to drive everyone to be competitive. And I think the fans will be aware of it. Uh, they'll look at it. And also, I think there's a, you know, this is professional sport. There's always something at the ballpark going on that drives competition. And if we create those systems... I think it'll it'll advance the game and create more interest. Love it. Fascinating stuff, Scott. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Some great ideas. And I hope uh, the Players Union and the owners uh, listen to this. Some great stuff that they should think about. Pleasure talking to you, Mike. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, Please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Hey, everybody, it's Chad Prather here, the guy that's unapologetically Southern on YouTube. Join me every Thursday for the Chad Prather Show exclusively here on Podcast One. I'm bringing armchair philosophy and observational humor to what's going on in the world as guests help me sort it all out. Nothing is off limits on the Chad Prather Show. Again, every Thursday, it's new episodes of the Chad Prather Show right here on Podcast One. Download and listen to new episodes exclusively on PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Have you heard about Moo Money? Moo Money? Moo Money is a rewards program that lets you earn cash every time you buy real milk. I use mine to buy movie tickets. Movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. It was a musical. Uh-huh. Anyway, just head to MooMoney.com to start earning moolah. Got it. Moolah. Hurry, or everything I told you will be moot. Oh, please, no more moos. Someone's a little moody. Open to legal residents of the state of California, 18 years of age or older. Visit MooMoney.com for official rules, terms, and conditions. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball. That's right. March Madness. March Mania and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at BetOnline.com. 
Ag. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sportsnet. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.